This is Max Q, the podcast by Peabody's Launchpad office dedicated to demystifying what life is like after graduation. Every episode, we sit down with a recent Peabody alum to get their take on what life is like for working artists in today's world. Multifaceted careers, time management, finances, finding balance between your life and your work. We explore that and more on the Max Q podcast. This week on Max Q, we're joined by the Bergamot Quartet. Since graduating, this alumni ensemble has found success performing, leading workshops, and is about to release their first crowdfunded album, In the Brink. I'm excited to share this conversation about how they built these different pieces of their quartet success. Good morning, Bergamot Quartet. It's great to have the four of you here with us on Max Q. Um, I know Sarah and Leda, you've you've been with us before, but it's good to have the whole group and we can, um, I'm excited to talk about you. I know you have an upcoming album coming out in May, and I also am really interested to talk kind of about how some of the um, projects that you built while you were in Baltimore have continued to live with you and, and also the experience you had moving through the past to now moving into three years. Um, just to get us all started, I wonder if uh, each of you could go around and just talk a little bit about what your life looks like right now. Hi, I'm Lita Fink. I am one of the violinists of the Bergamot Quartet. So life right now, I think probably for all four of us, mostly looks like quartet party all the time. Um, <laughs> we're pretty deep into trying to lay a lot of groundwork for the goals that we have for the both immediate and long-term future and just get more involved in New York or all currently based after not being able to do that so much for a lot of the time that we've all lived here for. Um, I'm also, I play a lot of impro- improvised music and have been trying to do more of that as, as well as get back to a writing practice. I used to write a lot of music. I kind of got, got away from it for a little while. I'm finding my way back there slowly. Um, and yeah, it feels like a very explorative time right now. Can can you lead or, or someone else share a little bit about like what these these short-term and long-term girl, goals are that you're, you're moving towards? Um, well, I guess this is short-term and long-term, but a main concern for us now is just conceiving of how we can make the quartet sustainable. Um, both, well, in all of the ways, financially, um, artistically, how we can grow to create the things that we really want to create, that we want to see in the music world. Um, We have dreams beyond just the four of us. I think we um, really want to be educators more actively. We want to keep commissioning works. We want to start projects that we can collaborate with a wide array of people on. Um, So that's kind of the big overview (laughs) of that. Hello, I'm Sarah Thomas. I'm the other violinist in the Bergamot Quartet. Um, That's that's really kind of what quartet life looks like right now. Um, I also am working at Launchpad uh, remotely from New York. So that's another part of what life looks like for me at the moment. Um, And I don't know if we mentioned this, but we're finishing up a degree at uh, the Manus School of Music in New York uh, this May. So part of life is also um, going to classes and going to orchestra um, and and trying to get to know our school community after really being fully online for our first year. So this year we've been trying to connect with our, our classmates and colleagues there as well. Great. Yeah, thank you. Um, 
Does anybody else want to chime in there? Um, hi, um, it's Irene speaking, the cellist in the quartet. Um, my life right now feels like I'm on a train and it's just going and I don't know when it's going to stop because I feel like these past two years have been so crazy with the pandemic and moving to New York and yeah, it's just a crazy time. <laughs> Hi, I'm Amy. I'm the violist with Bergamo and I can chime in too. Um, so yeah, I think besides like everything that my quartet um, mates have shared about like just growing the quartet artistically and like organizationally, I think yeah, like the managing admin for the quartet is a big day-to-day of all of our work as well. We split the work pretty evenly between four of us. Um, Lita does a lot of artistic planning. Irene takes care of finances. Sarah takes care of communications and I help with marketing. And for me, I think I've started to get more interested in that. So on top of, um, yeah, like working with the quartet and being in school, I'm also currently um, an intern with the Boulanger Initiative and with the marketing team because I do want to learn more of like how to like um, grow in those skills, which I think is really important for any artist to like really learn how to sell yourself <laughs> in a way. Yeah, so that's been really interesting for me. That, that's a great point to jump off of. I'm, I'm actually kind of curious about, I, I feel like a lot of time with ensembles is spent talking about, you know, organization of how how you set up the ensemble and how you started the ensemble but i'm actually really curious um as individuals for each of you how you chose those areas of specialization like what was the thing that drew you to each of that was there something or was it kind of like well uh nose game and i have now ended up with the finances part um and then secondarily how have you how you continued to kind of grow those skills because i the reason i asked to be more specific is um we speak with a fair amount of students who come in and say, well, I'm interested in doing something in arts administration, but I don't know what, I don't know how to figure out what I'm interested in, or I don't know how, um, how to get started. And so I, I'm curious about a little bit of that story for each of you, as you've built out these skills, um, supporting the quartet. Yeah. I think it kind of happened naturally that I ended up with this role. Um, I'm learning a lot about, um, managing money <laughs> and I'm also learning a lot about how to plan for I guess future seasons by seeing like kind of the growth that we've had and kind of the places that were maybe stalling so yeah it's just a lot of learning and looking at numbers <laughs> so just to, to drill down on that a little bit Irene is is there like um particular points in time where you found a resource that like ah oh, this like really opened things up for you or, or you know an experience that you had that that kind of was a catalyst for feeling like okay I've kind of got a handle on this um I think for me it's when I ask questions to other groups that are doing the same things as we are and kind of asking them to help they were really generous by giving us their um previous um, fiscal numbers. So by looking at those, I was able to kind of see what we were supposed to do and how to organize things. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, and also like just organizationally, like, um, 
like the like corporate structuring of like um the ensemble like it also came from like asking our mentors in the beginning like when we first started working with jack a large part uh we studied with the jack quartet at manis and like a large part of when we first met them was also like how do you function administratively as a music ensemble like how does that look like in the real world and i think that kind of kind of got also got us started into thinking more about like how to organize administratively and Sarah and I took a couple classes at the new school about um, nonprofit organization which has also been a big part of um, our work administratively in the more recent times yeah to um, go back to your earlier question Robin um, I think it's kind of a combination of like nose goes and what do we filter into um, I know Amy had some prior experience with marketing when she joined the quartet um, which was like, I know it was like a little bit, but it was more than the rest of us had. <laughs> and she has a great eye for aesthetic and color and whatnot. So we were like, you're great at this. Let's support you in continuing to do this. <laughs> um, and we have, we have been aware since the beginning, I think that we all have just pretty different like personalities and um, ways of being, which has been a really big strength of ours. Um, knowing where what areas we're all comfortable in whether it's talking to a bunch of strangers or whether it's writing emails <laughs> or like going to shows and scoping out possible venues or stuff like that um maybe stuff all of us are just a little more comfortable doing in our everyday life um since i'm also a composer i think earlier on maybe i was kind of more interested in um, thinking about programming for us and as well as writing music for the quartet, which I've done a little bit of, hope to do more of. Um, we also all have a practice of asking each other for help with our given tasks when we need it. There's a lot of delegation that happens, even though these are kind of the general roles we each take administratively on the day to day. Uh, Lita, to go back to something you were talking about earlier with, with your goals, um, Something that I've always been very impressed with that uh, Bergamot has done is had this this uh, arm of education and doing uh, residencies, and I, I think that that's that's an important part of most ensembles' work now. But I I think you guys got started very very early, and I'm kind of curious about what was the uh, journey to being able to get that first residency, and how how things have kind of progressed since then. In the same semester, we both did some work with Towson University where we had a, a connection with someone working there, as well as doing the Young Artist Development Series with um, Jill Bailey in El Paso. Those, I think those happened within a few weeks of each other, so there was a lot going on at that time. Um, and I think that they were those were pretty different things we were working with composers at Towson mostly, and we gave a concert, um, recorded some of the student composers' pieces there, and did a masterclass with them. And then in El Paso, we did, did we did a lot of work with the chamber music students at um, UT El Paso, but we also did a lot of community engagement work there, going to elementary schools and middle schools, and and working with high school students and undergrads and grads. We really covered the whole spectrum of ages in education while we were there that week and it was really exciting and I think that was a pretty new experience for us 
Um, and both of those experiences, both at Towson that semester and at, in El Paso, kind of showed us um, what was available to us in terms of education, or at least a sampling of that. There's, of course, a lot more um, since then, I think, that we've, that we've learned that we want to do and um, can do in that area. But it was just really exciting and inspiring for us to work with so many different people, and especially in El Paso within just like five days, getting to work with that many people and then to see all of them at a, at a concert at the end of the week from all these different places that we've met everyone over the past five days was really exciting and kind of opened some doors in our collective mind, I think, <laughs> collective quartet brain. I mean, how did, how did those two, the El Paso and the Towson um, residencies come about and what was the, what was the path to getting there? For Towson, we have a colleague that we met during grad school that actually worked there and advocated for us to do a residency there. He went and proposed that we come to the chair of the composition department and the chair of comp was so impressed that he was just like, oh, here's a young group that no one's really heard of that he wants in. So that taught us a lot actually about cold calling and just kind of being confident. What, what did it teach you though? I'm, I'm so curious about that. That sounds like a great story. I think it taught us that it's okay to reach out to, like that they hired us without even knowing us because the chair was just impressed that the, um, he was like, here, here's a group. I want them to come and I think you should too. <laughs> and then so we got a little bit more um, ideas about like, hey, we want to do this. Let's just write them. We have nothing to lose. If anything, just an email. I just want to say, like, the more you're on people's radar, once you've done that, the better it is. Like, even if it's just like, oh, I've heard their name before, they're much more likely to have some sort of investment in exploring further. <laughs> so, and for the, the El Paso, was that similar or was that different? That was through Peabody. Um, I think I was the only one in school at that time. And my teacher, I think, was the one that brought it, like, brought it to our readers. I think we knew a couple groups who had done it before. I think Lita did it before, actually, with her previous. Yeah, my trio group. had done it the previous yeah. year. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was like a yeah, competition through my... people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So my teacher um, brought it up. She was like, "Hey, you should um, think about this." And I brought it to a group because I think, what was I? Oh, I think it was my GPD. Yeah. So. Um, Wow, it seems like so long ago, but so soon. Um, but uh, yeah, so we applied because I was the only one left in school. Um, and we got the opportunity to go down there. So that was a Peabody opportunity. After, after these first two opportunities, was it, was it that you were able to kind of build on, on those experiences to apply to other ones? Or you know, what, what's been the, the path since then in terms of, of finding new opportunities? I think after that, we did a series of kind of cold call emails um, and ended up working with a couple more places in Baltimore, um, University of Baltimore, uh, UMBC, and Towson again, um, which is really exciting. And now we're now currently in another round of cold call emails, and it doesn't, well, Maybe it gets a little easier, but I would say it doesn't get more fun. It's just part of it. But sometimes people say yes, so it's worth it. And also sometimes people say no, and that's also fine. And 
a lot of times people say not this year, but maybe some other time. So then we have to add those people to a list of, hi, you said maybe some other time. I, I I'm really am interested to talk about because uh, I believe you've now run two successful crowdfunding campaigns. Just one. Okay. Well, even then, um, I'm really curious to kind of talk about what your experience was with putting that together and building that and actually, you know, getting through all the way. I mean, now you're you're at the finish line of putting the album out and, and getting things to people's hands. But I feel like so much of the work with these crowdfunding campaigns comes at the beginning of getting people in there and getting people to um, make those commitments. Uh, I, I'm really curious to hear about how that process went and, you know, uh, what you thought worked well and what you're like thinking about doing differently next time. Yeah, it was a converging of lots of things. What we ended up doing last March was we had something called Burger Fest. And over the course of the whole month, we had a ton of virtual weekly events, including um, interviews with the composers that were going to be on our album, listening parties over Zoom of their music, Um weekly like mini 20 minute concerts from where we were doing our residency that sometimes included music on our album and sometimes just other music we were working on often like really work in progress we played the first half of a big piece that we were working on um just kind of sharing our working process throughout that month since we were in residency together and then we also had weekly highlight videos of us just being our weird selves um that we would share with people so um, we used those events to kind of promote what we were doing and also as part of the fundraiser to um, get people on board and, and and get them excited about the work that we were doing. It was a really interesting process for us in a lot of ways, partially because we didn't... Four weeks is a long time to, to do a pretty intense fundraiser. Um, I think that's one of the things we learned is that four weeks is maybe a little too long, actually. Um, I think it worked fine because we were all, t- all together and we were able to manage it and s- devote a lot of time to it. But I-, I don't think in any other circumstance, four weeks would have been sustainable. I think that's kind of where we've landed at. So we're definitely reevaluating that for the future. Um, we're planning to have BurgerFest be a yearly thing in uh, a yearly fundraiser and kind of showcasing of work, but we haven't yet done another one. So that will be happening sometime this year, but uh, dates TBD. And we used Kickstarter for this, which had a lot of benefits. um, Some of which being that we could bring our merch ideas to life uh, in a really practical way. So that was really exciting. I've also secretly always wanted to make a Kickstarter, so I got to fulfill my own personal dream. Um, <laughs> it's really fun. Uh, but it is a lot of work, and they keep a lot of your money. So I think we're looking forward to being able to, to have a fundraiser using either fiscal sponsorship or 501c3 status once we attain that um, and not really have to deal with kind of the third-party Kickstarter elements. Um, Again, it's really useful. It worked really well for our album because it was a specific product we were trying to create. We really wanted to make this merch and it was our first time doing doing anything like this. So it was nice to have a a specific platform and a specific amount of time. Kickstarter operates that if you don't get all of your goal 
by the certain time you don't get any of the money and nobody gets charged. So they also gave a little extra incentive to say, we really need your help to get us to our number. And, um, and it worked. It was, it was really a very successful uh, campaign and we're really thankful for that. And now trying to kind of assess, see what's sustainable for future years, figure out how we need to adjust that um, based on our new goals that are now not necessarily just putting out an album, but raising funds for operating expenses and for commissions and for um, other projects for paying our collaborators that we that we're so lucky to get to work with uh, and for other projects that are just part of our, our day-to-day and year-to-year process. I just want to jump off of something that you, you mentioned. So you, you said you're working towards either, you know, working within a fiscal sponsor model or, or getting nonprofit status for yourself. I'm curious to know about the conversation about that and the, um, what's the, what's the, uh, choices that you're making between those two models. So we are pursuing 501c3 status. It's just taking a little longer than we thought. Um, so in the meantime, we might move towards a fiscal sponsor model for a short time period before, uh, to kind of get us through to getting approved for 501c3. So that's kind of just where we're at right now, which is why I mentioned that. Got it. We're definitely feeling a need to be able to um, solicit donations through that model versus the very specific Kickstarter at this point um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, The downside of a fiscal sponsorship is that most organizations like Kickstarter will take a cut of the revenue. so it's just kind of a balance to make, like, will we get enough donations through this model that it'll be, it'll be worth it? I think we feel that we would if we um, have another campaign similar to, to I guess, you know, Burgerfest 2.0. <laughs> um, but that's something we're learning is that we really need a mixture of very specific campaigns for specific projects and also a way of just having a cushion basically to allow us to continue to operate um because more expenses always come up even with the album it's costing more than we thought it would we didn't really know exactly how to budget for it because it was the first time any of us had um really produced an album from start to finish in this way that was you know in a professional studio someone was professionally mastering it artwork all the stuff um so many more expenses came up than we had foreseen I'm, I'm so just because we're we're in the middle of working on budgets right now and pitching. I'm so curious to know, like, what are some of the the things that came up that out of the blue that surprised you and you didn't budget for? Venue insurance, um, and things just ending up taking longer. So uh, renting spaces for longer. What else came up? Ed- editing taking longer than we thought. Just, I think we just really didn't know what to expect. We also, part of our our fundraiser, because we met our goal, we were able to set kind of an extra goal to get us to um, record one of the pieces with 410, the 410 Media on video, which is really exciting. Um, but we're still in the editing process for that, but I think that's also another example of just not quite understanding what would go into that, as well as... Um, how much time to allow since they were at the session recording the video and like how much time would um, both recording audio and video at the same time, like what that would look like and how much time we would need for that. It all worked out fine, but again, just like exp- expenses just a bit higher across a few different areas than, than we thought, which adds up, but 
there's more funding that can be found and has been found. <laughs> Another so. thing was that with 410, um, I think their rates increased between when we got a quote from them in March 2021 and when we actually hired them nine months later, which is super fair because they're extremely in high demand. They're an amazing team of, of um, media creators. But that was something we just, like it hadn't even occurred to us. <laughs> so I think when you're well, one thing we learned from that was that when you're when you're laying the groundwork for a large scale, long term project like this, you need to account for inflation, <laughs> potentially. Um, that was that was a big surprise to us. But we also really, you know, we feel bad asking artists we respect for like to cut us deals because we're poor. Um, and this is obviously a larger conversation just about the industry in general, but it costs so much to make the things that you're not making much money back from in the arts. Um, and it just feels bad to kind of be stuck in a place where you know you're going to struggle to afford paying someone you respect the rate that they deserve. So I don't think crowdfunding campaigns are the way to fix this long term, but <laughs> it is something that we're thinking about going forward just in terms of how we ask for money, the amounts we ask for. The last thing I just want to ask all of you is, uh, is there some advice that you would offer to current students, either students who are looking to start an ensemble or other string players about um, how to make best use of their time at Peabody or, or time management or any of these topics that we've kind of been touching on? Um, from my personal experience at Peabody, I would say do the things that make you happy with the people that make you happy because even if it, it seems like it's a school thing and it won't really like result to anything, it might. And also you're going to meet a lot of people if you do that. And while you're in school, I think it's the best time to do that because you're in a structure. And I remember the year I wasn't in school, I was so nervous about how to live my life. And I really miss that structure. And sometimes I wish I took more advantage of that. But now I'm back in school, so <laughs> I guess it doesn't matter. But um, yeah, my advice is to to really, really just do all the things when you're in school. I, I also loved, this is kind of going back to not taking things personally. I just remember so distinctly one of our mentors mentioning that to at the festival that we went to, um, kind of in a large group lecture setting. It was just like, don't take things personally in rehearsal. And I know that's maybe a really specific ensemble thing, but a lot of us in music are in ensembles, probably most of us. Um, and I feel like that's just such uh, an important and core thing is to remember that like our colleagues are human and we're human. And chances are, if someone's having a bad day, it's probably not to do with you. It might be. Also be aware of that. <laughs> if you're being mean, don't be mean. But, <laughs> you know. Um, but I think that just, like, keeping that space for yourself and for your colleagues, especially with people that you're working with closely, is so important. And, yeah, maybe that's more general life advice. But Yeah, and, uh, I think for me it's, like, let, like, I guess that things surprise you. So I think one of like the biggest experiences that surprised me while I was at Peabody was playing with the Peabody String Symphonia. Um, that was like the first kind of like community performance thing that I really did in like my career as a musician and as a student. And like 
before that, I was like, uh, it's not really for me, but I gave it a try and it really surprised me. I loved playing with the ensemble. I learned so much about my own playing and playing with an ensemble that I would never have learned just by being in a practice room. And not only that, it did get my feet a little bit wet with like doing more music admin things that I am currently also bringing to Bergamot. So I think that was like a huge thing for me to like, just like, yeah, like kind of similar to Irene and um, like just getting out there and like doing things and like being not like stuck in the practice room. I was going to say something similar to that, which is my Peabody specific advice is not to take Baltimore for granted while you're at Peabody. Um, it's easy to, while you're in school, really just like zero in on school, which I think is good. I mean, chances are you're paying a lot of money for it. You should get your money's worth, like take full advantage of the school's resources. But think about how that institution is within its larger community um, and how you can meaningfully be a part of that. I think it's really important for any student anywhere to have that in their mind. Um, and that really feeds into just a long-term conception of how you relate to audiences because um, it's not the case that you just do your thing and then like you'll have an audience like you have to work for it um, and it might not feel like work it might just be like you're doing something you love you're setting up shows and then it you know becomes that um, but it is something that takes a lot of commitment and I think um, yeah just being aware that Peabody is a historical institution that exists in a very historical city with a lot of amazing things in it is is really important for me when I was a student there it was really life-changing for me to just like get to know the community the larger community of Baltimore thank you so much um so lastly if you all just want to talk a little bit about the uh album that's coming out next month uh, what's the release date what you know is there you know a piece you're particularly excited about so the album is called in the brink um it's named for the piece that I wrote for Bergamot plus um, drum kit a couple of years ago, the drums on the album are played by Terry Sweeney, who's a member of Sandbox Percussion. Um, there are all four pieces on the album are recorded for the first time in this setting. Um, there's a piece by Suzanne Farron called Undechim, a piece by Paul Bianco called Ode on a Broken Loom, and a piece by Tanya Leone called Essencia. And we're super excited about all of these pieces. They're, they're all very different from each other, but all really meaningful to us. Um, and it comes out on May 6th on um, New Focus Recordings. Okay. Well, we'll make sure we have a link to more information about that in the show notes. All right, Bergamot, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's, it's so great to catch up with you. And um, best of luck with the album release and the upcoming projects. Thanks so thank much for having you. us. Thank you. We'll close the episode with a bit of Lita Fink's composition In the Brink, which gave the album its name. Releasing on May 6th, you can find more information about Bergamot and In the Brink in the episode notes.
2021 theme music for the Max Q podcast created by Dimitro Nebish.